Hey, I'm Fred from ConstellVariations.com. You're listening to Scene World. Enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Scene World. I'm AJ. Jurg is right there. Yes. It is Sunday best. Uh, except it's Monday. Well, um, in a minute, we have Rob Hubbard and Chris Abbott, and we're, we're talking about the uh, the Eight Pit Symphony. So that's pretty awesome. We've had each of them individually on the podcast talking about uh, Project Hubbard and, and some of the other stuff that Chris was involved in. But this will be our first time getting them together. So that is very cool. Exactly. And we'll talk about um, how it is to make it sound good for symphony yes real symphony like not not like you know synthesized symphony or something like that like an actual symphony with instruments and and people and stuff yeah it's not the first time he did that he did that also once in 2007 with run 10 together with um Yaruntel. right right yeah i remember so that. um but of course uh, it's easier if you only work with your own music. Yeah, and it is so cool to do it with your own music too because a lot of times, and we covered with like Dave Lowe and so forth, a lot of times when you write this stuff, you you, you in your mind you hear like this big orchestral thing and then you do it for the Sid and it's three voices. And you I have know. to really pare it down a bit. And so to be able to actually take what, hear it and, and, and put it in a way that you initially imagined it, that is really, really nifty. Yeah, yeah. So that's in a minute. Before we do that, though, we got a little bit of a uh, little bit of news to hit on. Um, yeah, yeah. Super Mario Bros. Yes. was converted to the yes. Commodore sixty four, and not only stock Commodore sixty four, but one hundred twenty eight two megahertz super CPU, um, Turbo Chameleon, NTSC Paul. <laughs> it's 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 really. Um, and and it handles uh, and that, that's really one of the reasons I I, I think it's so cool dual is SID. that yeah right it handles the dual SIDs so I've got the SID effects in my sixty four and it'll actually see the two SIDs you can set it up to play with the two SIDs so you don't have because uh, the because the Nintendo has four voices I believe uh, yes though they're, they're locked in what they do whereas the SID is is more flexible in, in the noises it makes. But uh, it sounds better with the dual SIDs than just with the one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it does use... I have tried it on... Um, I've got my 64C hooked up for the most part. And it runs okay on that. There are some slowdowns. Because from what I gather, this is like a, a one-to-one port. And this is like using the original source code of Super Mario Exactly, Brothers. exactly. Yeah. And of course, Nintendo is... It's a it's a sixty five oh two core, but it's running at one point seven megahertz, whereas the sixty four is running at one. So well for Americans, for Europeans, it's running on uh, oh yeah nine eight. It's running at ninety eight hertz, not even a not even a megahertz, just just ninety eight hertz. But um, yeah, so there's some slowdowns. It does use the. Uh, Two megahertz on the borders on the 128. I tried that last night, and it does help with the the slowdowns a bit. Um, but yeah, it's really interesting, and it's kind of 
it's 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 cool to see them squeeze that out of a out of, out of a C64. Took him seven years and he didn't give up on it. Yeah, which is it's not the first first project of its kind. The original uh, project that way was actually um, Super Mario Bros. for the Mega Drive, and that and there the coder also used um, the original source code. Right. And um, and wrote a routine to make the music play like on the NES. So it's the same concept. But the Mega Drive is a lot different as far as the underlying hardware, because yep. because I think it's got a sixty-eight thousand in it, doesn't it? I d- I don't I don't know by heart. I'll tell you in a second. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a sixty-eight thousand at seven point six megahertz and a Z80 Z80 at uh, three three point five. So. It's it's a lot different. Whereas this is more of a, I would imagine, more of a straight port as far as um, as far as the the because they're both sixty five XX beasts, right? And, but from what I gather too, the the graphics capabilities of the C sixty four are not the, the NES is much more suited to doing this than the sixty four is, and. Some of the comments I've seen is that it's sort of a miracle that they've managed to squeeze this graphically out of the 64. So. Well, especially the colors look pretty close, despite it's a different color palette. Yeah, I think the NES had more colors, too. Mm, are you sure about that? I am fairly certain. Palette of 48 colors and 6 grays. 48, okay. And add a total of 64 sprites may be displayed on screen at a given time without reloading sprites mid-screen. Now, now I hope that somebody is doing international soccer. <laughs> so I mean, so I mean that there, you know, the the sixty four has eight, uh, sixteen colors and eight sprites, which is not anywhere near, you know, versus the forty eight and six grays of the of the Nintendo and. Yeah, I especially I think that. Um, that the question mark blocks look quite different on the Commodore 64. Yeah. That is the first thing as a difference I've noticed. In in the NES version, it's orange. Mm-hmm. And in the Commodore 64 version, it's yellow. Right. And they look and they look smaller for some reason. I I don't think that they are actually smaller. I think that it looks a little bit different because it does. They do use the multicolor mode on this for for the backgrounds for most of for a lot of it. So so it's not going to look perfect because the uh, the NES had the you know regular pixel sizes, whereas this has the fat multicolor pixels. That is probably the reason why. Yeah. And I have noticed that it does crash a fair amount on my sixty four C, which I believe is because of the VSP bug. Yes, I, I I I tried it first with my Aldi C64, uh-huh. and this one doesn't have the bug at all. So it would crash, and I at within seconds I wouldn't be even able to play it. Mm-hmm. So I had I had to use another C64 to to use it. Well, no, that's but, interesting. But not, that, that's interesting yeah. because my 64C has the same revision of motherboard as an Aldi 64 would have. 
Um, but it took me the first bunch of times that I tried using it, it would crash it immediately right out of the box, like you said. And then after maybe five or six different tries, then it would run. And I'd had I through all my playthroughs of it, it has crashed mid game once since, but otherwise I haven't had a problem with it at all. Mm-hmm. And and as and apparently the VSP bug is not something that always. I was looking. There was a tester program that you can get to to see if it if your computer has yeah. it, and you're supposed to leave it on for like hours. So, yeah, I know. So you could go for hours and hours without having the bug, and then suddenly it pops in. So I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, that is why it's recommended to uh, to use a Z64 Reloaded. Yeah, because there, there is the bug permanently. Yeah, or I guess the 128 is okay with it too because I used that and it didn't have any issue and it uses the turbo mode. Not turbo I didn't mode, try. But... I didn't try the super CPU yet, and mm. I'm very happy that this software supports the super CPU nat- natively. Yeah, that is really uh, that's impressive. Because pe- people always ask me, "What do you use a super CPU for?" And I always say, I'm using it always for test drive, the first first version, because it has a frame a frame limiter in it. Mm-hmm. That means it limits the frames it will display. And so that was a pretty much forward thinking for 87 yeah. that they would put in um, a frame limit routine just in case somebody would be able to run the C64... Um, Faster in the future, hmm. which actually happened like 10 years later with the Flash 8 mm-hmm. Turbo card. That nobody ever owned. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, yeah. There's also always mentioned that Ross Müller didn't really uh, produce a lot of them. <laughs> and I guess that's the only product Ross Müller has every mentioned for and that's <laughs> that's the uh, the flash 8 um accelerate card yeah. but hey thanks to them it it got us the super cpu and that's mm, pretty pretty flawless and it's interesting because i look at all those videos that were made for super mario Bros. and people are always you know pulling up their super cpus and I seem to be one of the few people that have um, the version 2 mm-hmm. because most I see videos made from our version 1 because you can see that on the different reset button. Right. That's, that's interesting. Um, ooh, ooh, well, the, it, the other thing also that, that this Mario Brothers uh, port supports is two-button joysticks or gamepads. Yes. And um, originally, only there was only one game that ever supported that, and that was Chase HQ2, mm-hmm. because it was shipped with the C64 GS. So now, now we got to try to find a two-button controller. I have, I have one. Would I a, have a, a GS. Would a, uh, a Sega Master System controller work with that? Well, you know, not without an adapter, because it can kill your sit. No, no. That's the that's the Mega Drive or Genesis controller. The original Sega Master System controllers you can use without an adapter. Ah, right. All right. I wonder right. if they because they have more than one button, but I don't know if those buttons are mapped to anything. Not not that I think so. Hmm. 
Um, but but actually now there is somebody on eBay that is selling um, custom-made um, gamepads oh, hey with now. a second button. So there's always a market for something. Yeah. And we'll put we'll put a link in this podcast description to where you can get this new Super Mario Brothers. I can't guarantee you that by the time we release this, uh, that Nintendo will not have swooped down like an eagle from the sky and plucked it from the internet. Which makes me wonder why it was never put on anything Nintendo wouldn't have access to. You know, like you know, game base. Yeah. Commodore Scene database. It is Scene.org. It is on the SDB, CSDB. Oh, the original version or, yes, the, or only the Flash version? The original version. Okay. And, okay. and several cracks. Yeah, that is what I was after. Okay, so the original version too. Yeah, so... Because, yeah. because he used those limited time downloading services. And yeah, like, I know. Okay... That's the best source you can get your stuff hosted on. Not. Well, yeah, but at the same time, I, I can understand not wanting to like host it on your own site because, again, it's it's a Nintendo product. It's it's not just a Nintendo product. It's pretty much the Nintendo product. And I mean, they're so tight with what they they put out and what they let other people do that you know they're going to be. I'm surprised that they haven't come along yet. And tried to because it was Easter. Yeah, so like I said, we'll put links to this stuff, but I can't guarantee you that they're going to work. Um, on the C sixty four TV, actually, I also linked to the cartridge case uh -huh. and label somebody created for this already. Okay. So hey, yeah. <laughs> easy. Hey, I got some more uh, new stuff as far as we've covered. Yeah. Yeah, you, you you told me about this new Sid um, clone from the Czech Republic. Yeah, it's it's so we've got the Sid FX, which is you know uses your regular Sids, but we've also got the the FPGA Sid project and the Swin Sid and the Swin Sid Ultimate and all those other things. Well, there's also the Arm Sid, which I just saw, which seems to I be hope pretty. It doesn't. I hope it doesn't cost an arm and a leg. It doesn't. It costs twenty seven euros. <laughs> An arm. And, yes, uh, yes. I, 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 I heard it. I was ignoring it. Uh, about, how much does it cost again? 27 euros. Okay, not bad. It's about 30 That's bucks. Yeah, it's not bad yeah, at all. That is, that is about what the Swinsit Ultimate is costing. Yeah. And it, or and did it, cost. Yeah, yeah and so um, you can change it. You can tune the filters. You can... Um, it does the, the, um, the analog inputs for like mice and stuff properly. So which which a... the other ones do too, but people were fearlessly saying it's not right. Um, but there, and so he there's that is available, and there's also ARM two SID plus FM. Yeah, I saw that. So you can use the stereo um, model that you already have, like the SID, SID FX right. or something, and then and then map a cable between between them, and they have some kind of. Emulation going on. It's an it's it's OPL FM synthesis. Yeah, which is similar to your um, the FM YAM or YAM FM or whatever however yeah. it's, whatever it's called. YAM FM exactly. Yeah. So that's that's also very interesting. Um, 
That's not out yet. That is supposed to be um, April, end of April 2019, which is right about now. And um, it's not available yet, so keep everybody informed. I'll put links again to where you can get to these things in the podcast description. So when it is available, it'll be available. And I don't have any pricing. (laughs) No, no, no. I I do have pricing information. I'm sorry. It's 48 to 49 euros for the ARM2 SID plus FM, which again, a little over 50 bucks American. So it's not a bad, uh, not a bad deal. And you are supporting Europe. It's coming from the Czech Republic. Yeah, yeah. Which is which is interesting. I mean, we we said it already. A lot of good things nowadays they are coming from Czech Republic, Poland. I've never I've never never ordered so much from Poland for my Z sixty four like I did in the last three years. It's it's amazing. Yeah. So pro. Um, Poland and uh, Czech Republic became countries with really good quality products. Yeah, they are. The Czech Republic is also known for the IDE64 controller. Mm-hmm. That's also very, very good. Yep. Um, so, hey, can't complain there, yeah. you know. Um, and um, we, we already had um, the PSU64 guy, for example. So... Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. More power to them. Yeah. Very cool. Well, what what else have we got? <clears throat> okay. So what we didn't mention yet is that the reshooter soundtrack is available on CD now. Mm. And um, uh, the Scene World podcast is also now available on Google Podcasts. Google Podcasts, unfortunately, is only available in America. Just in time for this episode, which is <clears throat> podcast number 64. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Which And having having Rob Hubbard on podcast number 64 is pretty much, I don't think we could have done any better than that. That's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> oh, 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 actually, I got more. I got more news. Okay, sure. We talked to Thomas Cherry Holmes a few podcasts back, and we just we went over the whole uh, Irata online system. Uh, it's a Plato Net uh, service exactly. that he runs, and it's been ported to almost every freaking thing known to the human race. Um, he has just acquired a um, like a it's a military. I can't remember what it's called, but it's a military spec computer, and he has from Russia. From Russia, yes, from Russia. And he has ported it to that, um, which is also I think it's I think it's a DOS version essentially, but it's a different screen resolution and all that. So it's now on that as well. This guy is just uh, he's a machine. He, this dude's is a machine, just cranking out different versions of this thing. It's yeah, kinda, I know. Kind of I amazing. Know. He just must run on caffeine and. So and and finally, before we uh, before we get on to the rest of it, um, uh, Crystal Herring has been a a friend of the podcast for a number of years now. We had her on in the er, in the early days when she was still in the Frag Dolls, and uh, we did a Twitch stream. Was it a Twitch stream? It was a Twitch live stream right. for the Frankfurt Film Museum. That's right, right, right. We, we did that yeah, with her again in, a couple of years in, later uh, to, to, in 2015. Right. So so we like her a lot, and she's been. 
she's been around for a bit. Um, her mom has been diagnosed with with cancer, which is very uncool. Um, and they're running a GoFundMe. Exactly uh, to help, it's... yeah, to help cover some of the expenses of care that for the care that is required. So, we encourage everyone to go and contribute something to to that. You know, a lot of times we have we're running kickstarters for games and and stuff like that. That's that's going on. And games are games. It's it's fun. It's cool. You know, if it could mean something to you. But but this is like an actual. It, it's it's more important than funding a game, essentially. But it still surprises me how how often it happens. I mean, look at um, 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 Captain Crunch mm -hmm. that had several GoFundMe raisers and stuff. Right. So we'll put a link to that in the podcast description. We encourage everyone to go, and even if it's you know a dollar or two something to to help out, would be awesome. I guess every penny counts. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. One other bit we got is our own awesome Nick Vivid, who who we love to death and is probably one of the, the better coders that I know on the 64. Strike term, strike term, modem. No, the, yeah, the strike link modem, uh, strike term, uh, the new version of CCGMS, which uses like the exactly. RU for the, the buffer and all that stuff. Um, uh, he's also got a version of unzip. Um, and it works with the SD2 IEC and partitions. Um, so he's got, there's a lot of different stuff that he's done, which is kind of amazing. Um, and, he, and he did our NTSC fixed voodoo noter in yes. 2002. Yes. That's actually how, how we got uh, we, how we got him, because he was like, okay, you need an NTSC fixed voodoo noter. Here you have it. Right, <laughs> right. So awesome guy. He's got a new album coming out. Uh, album is called Blissed Out. The release, I believe, is May 17th, so that's a, a bit away, uh, a month or so, but from everything I've seen, it's his normal awesomeness. So, again, links yes, to everything. Yes, his last album on tape was brilliant. Orange tape, had to get it. <laughs> yes. So, links to all this in the description below. Everybody check it out. I, I bought a Walkman just because of him. <laughs> nice. So, anyway, yeah, so, so Rob Hubbard and Chris Abbott are right there. Why don't we go talk to them? Yep, yep. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go get you guys some coffee. I'll be right back. Start, okay, start with start without me. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so today we will be talking to um, Rob Hubbard and Chris Abbott about the Eight Bit Symphony that will actually happen in UK in June. So yeah, that, that's let's, correct. let's start a bit about how did that start to happen? Maybe let's start first from Rob's perspective. How did that start to happen? Um, well, I, I did um, a, a small project for Hull College, which was called GoGo Dash. And um, it was basically me coming out of retirement, so to speak, to do that job. And um, Chris was involved with Hull College talking to a guy called Graham. And uh, they talked about the possibility of uh, getting Hull College involved with the Hull Philharmonic to do a, a concert. 
of course, we never thought it was really going to happen. And um, then things started moving, and before we knew it, they'd actually, whole College had booked the um, City Hall for the 15th of June, and that started the ball rolling. Because once, once they booked the venue, then we had to knuckle down and uh, get everything else organized. So, how was it for you, Chris? Um, this is something I've been trying to put into action ever since I heard Rob, Rob's Kentilla arrangement back in around 1998, 98-99. And uh, then tried to get some orchestral stuff onto Back in Time too. did that with Forbidden Forest and Aztec Challenge. Then Rob did uh, versions of his stuff, um, War and uh, Kentilla, again, for, uh, for Back in Time 3. There were attempts to get it going over the years. It started, it stopped, it was in France, it was in Germany, <laughs> it was nowhere. But there was always that problem of you not seeing the ticket money to pay for the stuff until you've done the concert and paid for the stuff. And um, the whole college thing, when that came up, we'd already been working on the orchestral angle properly for two years since the Kickstarter, so there was already a lot of material there, some from Rob, some from other people. And... Um, Uh, the whole college thing came just at the right time when we had enough material to be able to to prove that this wasn't just pie in the sky, that there was that some actual stuff going on. As it turns out, there's a lot more steps after that in terms of to get the scores to the orchestra in a playable sense. And Rob's had a huge hand in that because he's a musical director and has taken a hand on all the, all the scores as well as his own. And uh, that's where we are at the moment. So it, it took maybe 20 years And it took a combination of circumstances and a lot of hard work to, to get to this point. The um, Kickstarter you mentioned that we also spoke earlier about in a previous show, that was Project Hubbard? No, this was an earlier one, Back in Time Symphonic Collection. Ah, okay. um, uh, the, that, the idea behind that was simply to generate the money to get the scores done for a concert. We didn't know what concert. I just knew that if we had... If we had the scores, we would be able, in a much better position, to be able to get to do a concert. Because you can't book the concert and then have no scores, especially if you're starting from zero. Um, and you can't sell, you can't do a Kickstarter for just scores because there's not enough people interested in scores. Um, so we sold a, a CD of mock-ups, which we spent three years doing and thrown thousands of pounds of libraries and a heck of a lot of man hours at which are now sounding really really good so that to the the uneducated to, to most people it would sound like a real orchestra only people like rob and orchestral people would be able to tell it wasn't because of the lack of certain things like tempo changes or or uh, mistakes even i see i see interesting and um in the press announcement you actually write you had a dream to do like something like that for 30 years. Yeah, I mean, you can't help listen to something like Cantella or Trap and not think that it was originally meant to be orchestral. You can't. It just sounds like it's the same with Spellbound. It's like it It just was meant to be. There, there were quite a few Commodore 64 tunes that were like that. There's quite a few that weren't. There's quite a few that they just come, they do a bass line, they do a melody and they go away, but people like Rob and Ben uh, were writing bigger than the chip in terms of musical ideas 
Yeah, I remember, Rob, um, in our last interview, you mentioned you had like different versions. You had the original, um, the original, um, I would say, symphony version, and then you had like broken down for every sound chip and computer a different version, right? In in some respects, yeah, that's true. The um, if I did like a SID version, then I had to often um, scale it down to do the AY chip version. Um, but uh, some of these things were kind of more in 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 the concept or the initial idea might have been um, orchestrally driven because of the fact that. I was listening to so much uh, film music at the time, which, of course, during the 80s was really a big orchestral scores. So I was heavily influenced by that and um, trying to learn learn about the craft of how those guys wrote that kind of music. That filtered down into some of the stuff that I was trying to do, even with the limitations of the uh, C64. Who are your favorite com favorite film composers at the time? Well, obviously, you know, John Williams is right up there, along with James Horner, mm. and then uh, Jerry Goldsmith. There's a whole whole host of those guys that are just fabulous <laughs> musicians, fabulous composers, who know their, know their craft inside out. In the stuff you've done for Abit Symphony, are there any bits where you've been trying to capture the essence of a particular composer or, or time period? Um, well, obviously, I've listened to an awful lot of John Williams, and some of that's going to, you know, uh, whether you like it or not, it's going to um, kind of sift through. It's, it's trying to, it's trying to come through. Um, I had an interesting talk with um, a friend of mine, and who listened to, who's had me um, play some jazz stuff, and I told him about, oh, here's some great albums that I listened to, and the first thing he said was that I can hear the influence of what you'll be listening to in your playing. So no matter what you listen to, it's going to get absorbed into your you know, memory banks and deep psyche somewhere, and at some point, whether you like it or not, it's going to emerge and come through in some form or another. So, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I, you know deliberately try to you know sound like somebody but i think that it's inevitable that uh, your influence is uh, going to come through um i played the updated monty to um i give a version to barry leach and the first thing he said was uh, you've been listening to prokofiev which i thought was very insightful but a, you know a wonderful comment that made me feel you know pretty good I mean, I, I can't, I can't pretend that there, there were there were two of the um, there were two of Rob's pieces which I kind of started and then Rob took and uh, and made his own. And uh, uh, one of them was Monty on the Run High Score, which I started off as basically a rip off of Layers Theme, and Rob took it and ripped out all the all the derivative stuff and and went right back to I think to the 19th century where John Williams got his his uh, inspirations from for that i think you rob called it a 19th century romantic piece it uh, is yeah yeah I, I mean with with that piece it was a case, a lot of it is um it's a case of 
Well, you, you're trying to aim for key changes because you did a, you did a key change really early on that I thought was real nice, mm. and um, so throughout later on in the in the piece, I um, wanted to try to get instruments in the best register, and so then you're thinking about well, if, to get them in a certain register, I need to get it into this key, and so then you're thinking how do I get from A to B, as it were to get it into the new key and and work out some kind of logical progression so that when you hit the key change, it has a big lift to it. I think that that Monty uh, Commando high score should uh, should be a highlight. I think it really will. I mean, that, that when it gets when when it comes off the quiet bit and does the whole comes back in for the grand romantic flourish. Yeah, it's quite, yeah, it's yeah. quite a quiet moment. I've I've. Yeah. There, it, there's a real wow in there for for people yeah. I've, for people I've played it to, and yeah, yeah it, it 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 will soften people up emotionally for Trap and Fire Lord and and yeah. and, and the well, big plus. You know, um, the other thing is it it's, it will provide, you know, um, a lot of the other stuff is much more upbeat, and that will provide uh, a nice contrast. So it will kind of take things down a few notches mm. for a little while. Definitely, and give the yeah. trumpet, get give the all the brass apart from the horns a rest. Because I just when I looked at the score, I noticed there's nothing but nothing in there but the horns, which is yeah. There's only French horns, yeah. Yeah, which is the brass <laughs> arrest. <laughs> Unfortunately, the French horns throughout most of the pieces have a pretty hard time. As yeah, to, you know, as as to the poor viola players, they don't get much rest. You know, I mean, you try to. You still try to give the some people um, rests when you can. Um, I, I noticed in the, in Monty on the Run High School that there's a bit where it sounds like there's a trumpet, but it's actually the violas. Was that purposeful? Um, I'd have to have a... Um, I, I, yeah, I, I don't know if it was purposeful, but um, I'd have to have a look to see which which bar it was and the, the violas are playing quite high so it sounds a bit like a bit like a trumpet descant but it isn't yeah yeah it's very good anyway i was yeah. very impressed actually talking about symphonies it's not the first project of a kind you did i mean for example it's 12 years ago that you did run 10 with uh, Jeroen Tell before, and that was also um, a Z64 orchestra project, and it also included Commando, as we spoke about right now, and also International Karate. I wonder if you um, took anything from your experience with the Run 10 orchestra from back in the days, and said, okay... I will improve there and make some things different for the 8-bit symphony. Um, well, the problem with the whole Run 10 thing was the fact that it was such a... It was more like a kind of a chamber music ensemble. Okay. And, um, you know, maybe it was a bit over-ambitious on my part with the way I tried to orchestrate stuff for, you know... Two violins, a viola, cello, and a double bass. Um, two horns, one trumpet, one trombone. 
one flute, one oboe, and one clarinet. Um, so it, everything sounded like um, very thin because there just wasn't enough instruments to try to do it justice. But um, I, I used the word polite. It sounded polite. Yeah. It, it just, I mean, a lot of it just didn't, it never kind of quite worked as well as it should have done. Okay, well, I have to admit I'm not a musical symphony expert. For me, it sounded amazing. But I guess I have well, um, other values than you guys who are deep into music. It provided a lot of raw material for this. It gave us a starting point for, I mean, yeah, the, either... yeah, the uh, run 10, the middle bit of commando. Basically, I lifted that out of there to use in the 8-bit orchestra, and then I um, kind of reorchestrated some of it. But the basic material was straight out of the Run 10 Commando high score part. Yeah. The uh, Monty on the Run was completely rewritten. Yeah, when I started it, it was basically a rip-off of Sabre Dance. Um, yeah. And William Tell and uh, uh, Rob uh, Rob liked it, but he didn't. I don't think he wanted his key iconic piece to be um, a, a cheap rain knockoff of other composers. So he. Uh, well, the, it, the problem was was that it was you know, I thought that the, the rip off was just a little too close at times. You know, so it was a first. So it was a first rate rip off. <laughs> You know, yes. there's always a problem when you're trying to rip something off. Is that you know you you walk this thin line between trying to rip it off so that somebody says, "Oh, that sounds a bit like that," and then you cross that line and oh, hang on, you've ripped it off too much. You know. Although I, I listened to the um, the score uh, version of Monty on the Run, um, and that actually, once it gets going, it, it does the same thing, sabre dance wise. Yeah. So I wasn't even original with my own originality. Yeah. But anyway, it's it's a lot it's a lot better now. I I'm 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 very pleased about how the um the the quiet original section of music has gone down with with listeners because I was yeah. I was worried that it was a bit far from the from, but in context and with the proper rendering it seems to be going down very well and there's the very Return of the Jedi vibe about some of it Ewok forests and whatever in that yeah, set. Yeah. yeah. Monty on the Ewoks. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to find it. We, well, if it wasn't for Lucas, Lucasfilm looking at everything with a copyright eye, we'd probably do a skit on that. And but that, that's what one of the things with the videos for the for the um, the concert is. It's very easy to try and be funny, and it's very bad to try and be funny because. We want the music to be taken seriously as an emotional experience. So, yeah. so I, I've had to tone down my natural tendency to be clever or witty. And yeah. You don't know what the timing is going to be like, though, do you? No, that's also, also true. I mean, we have to just put some padding on the end. And I mean, if, if, if it ends like 10 seconds early or something, people aren't going to mind. It's not being recorded. People yeah. get the experience out of it. Um, if If... If we ever really, uh, I, don't, I don't think you'd ever do that thing with a click track. It would just ruin everything. So but, you, you but, just live with the live with the uncertainty and put, yeah, put padding, yeah. and put padding in. Yeah. If you had uh, the Hollywood Orchestra, you could do it with a click track. Yeah. It would still it would still sound fantastic because those guys are you know the A grade players. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of it going on now with trance and stuff. But uh, yeah, for, for for our purposes, we've got to. It's difficult enough for them to play the music without the added distraction of having to synchronize to something. Oh yeah, yeah. After yeah, the conductor, yeah. so yeah. Yeah. Plus the fact you need um, individual monitor mon- mixes and monitors and headphone oh. mixes for for individual sections and players and. Yeah. Th- yeah, that's the thing. Because because of the, this is such a low budget thing. I mean, we're lucky to be doing it at all. That everyone's been so generous with their time getting this up and running, yeah. um, and because it ha- we want it to happen, and we want it to happen well, and and that means keeping it as simple as possible: an orchestra, a stage, a, a venue, and some stuff projected onto a onto a screen. Yeah, yeah. As you said, low budget project. What would you normally spend on such a kind of project? Oh, bloody hell. If you counted up the hours, people would... It would be like hundreds of thousands of pounds. Okay. As as it is, everyone is pulling together and making something happen because they love the art. Um, and the, once you've got a series of scores, which is what we're working towards, then then you've 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 then got a series of things that can fit much more sensibly into a, a professional concert equation because then you've you've done that you've got those scores then you've just got the venue the orchestra any extras and you can do it you know it's baby steps so we've got to the we've got to the point now where we've got 17 fabulous scores that are almost you know little bugs here and there but basically there all we need to do now is get them printed and distributed and they're always the pdfs have already gone to the players so it's all in have, progress. have we got the funding from whole college sorted out on the uh, on that issue they've promised to do it um I, i've been i've been um lia i've been sticking myself in the middle between north world's printers robin matthew and graham to get because um the printer thought they'd submitted enough information but they hadn't so I, I pulled in and said, "Look, you've got to do a detailed quote, blah 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 blah. Get it to Matthew because he because he's got to tick the relevant boxes to get the procurement process underway." And that's yeah. all. That's all in process now. I'm keeping an eye on that. If if there is a point at which someone has to step in and say, "Okay, right, I'll I'll fund the, I'll, I'll pay the printer uh, and then claim the money back later," then we'll have to do that. Um, I have to I have to pass the hat round. Um, it's it's about three thousand one hundred now, which is more. We thought it was going to be four point five k, so yeah. three point three point one is a re- reasonably pleasant surprise. Yeah, yeah. Um, considering the original estimate was six hundred. But if 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 all college had committed to that, they should honour their commitment. Uh, they should, but they were given a bit of a bum steer on the scale. But they have. They they are they are. They are committing to it, yes. I mean, it's, it's not—it's not the question of them saying no. It's the question of being able to get the procurement through all the systems in time for the deadline. There may need to be a cheat where it needs to be paid up. It's—it's it, it's all to do with logistics and procurement, as opposed yeah. to the, the yeah, theory. Yeah. But I'm—I'm—I'm yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm on it. I'm not going yeah. to let uh, me and Graham aren't going to let the the concerts go ahead with our scores. Okay. 
How was it for you, Rob, seeing that you did run 10 before? Was it this time easier to make another project similar to that? I guess uh, the first round back then you had to work with Sierra Tell and now you are, um, well, only focusing on your own music. How was that for you, Rob? Um it's a lot easier to focus on your own stuff than it is to work with somebody else's stuff because um, with your own stuff, I mean, I I can take whatever liberties I want and I can go off in whatever direction I want. I can change things that, that, that I'm not happy with with the original and swap and change it and, you know, invert things and play it backwards and do all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, because I've only got myself to please with it, really. And, um, you know, the book stops with me. But when you, if you're working with other people's music, then you tend to be um, a lot more cautious and um, you can't really take so many liberties. I mean, I see that when people are doing um, some of my own uh, arrangements, like the... Um, I heard recently the Fast Loaders guys did the Commando High Score. Oh, yes. And the first thing I thought of was, why on earth didn't you put up Harmony Guitar Light in there? <laughs> it's crying out for it, but they didn't do it because, you know, the original didn't have it. And so maybe they thought that they wanted to stick more to the original. But, you know, if I'd have been involved with that, the first thing I would have said was, You, you've got to put a harmony guitar line on there because it's, it's, it, it just, it, it's just basically screaming out for one. Um, and then the, the other difference between doing the run, run 10 and the 8-bit is that um, when I did the run 10, I, the only thing I had really to give any kind of rendition was general MIDI and, um, with the 8-bit symphony I've been working with Sibelius and this magic program called Note Performer which does a real good job of, of ren rendering orchestral instruments so you get a much uh, better feedback loop about what you're doing and you enter a new way of doing things because while you're uh, being creative and coming up with ideas You're also doing thinking about and doing the orchestration at the same time, rather than, um, you know, writing writing a musical idea and then thinking about at a later stage how we're going to orchestrate something. So uh, it seems to me to be a much better way of working with the uh, Sibelius and the note performer. Okay, so this is just how. Technology progressed compared to uh, 2007? Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. I mean, I was using Finale, you know, uh, back 12 years ago, whenever it was. I was using Finale, which was a pretty good notation program, but it didn't have any kind of rendering to be able to hear what you're doing. And so I had to keep... Um, locking things up with, with general MIDI or my trusty old uh, Ro 
digital and synthesizer and um it's not it's not such a good way of doing things compared to what you've got now <laughs> um quick question rob when you were doing when, when ik was played in uh, leipzig in 2005 2007 um yeah. uh, how surprised were you at when you got when, when the first rehearsal happened and uh, the sound that was how different was the sound at the rehearsal to what was in your head when you were doing the score? Because you wouldn't have heard it at all orchestrally before that moment. No, no, I didn't. No, I thought um, the Prague Orchestra, to be honest, were really, really good players. And uh, it sounded much, much better than uh, what I anticipated, especially that slow section. The mm -hmm. more kind of, when it slows down to... Um, what is it? I don't know. Three quarters of the way through the tune, it, it yeah. slows right down. Um, the there was a couple of surprises, like the piccolo was too high, and that took your head off, and had to take that down the octave. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the flute passages, they thought was a bit difficult, which was um, the, the guy asked if he could play it on the piccolo. But the brass had sounded fantastic, and you know, it was generally, um, it was generally much better than I uh, thought it was going to be. Plus so, the fact that well, when I heard it in the theatre, what was it called, the Gavunt House or something? Mm-hmm. You know, the, I mean, that place is designed for an orchestra. It's just the acoustics, and the sound was just amazing. It's a pity no recording exists, but it doesn't. Well, I don't think so. smartphones were capable of it then. No, they weren't, no. <laughs> no, they were still stuck with the old, was it, what was that, Nokia, something or other. Yeah. You know, people were playing Snake, and that was about the size of it. <laughs> That's actually true. So when you listen to renditions of your own stuff played by symphony, you sometimes had moments where you thought maybe hope nobody minds that it doesn't sound right. Um, there's two aspects. Some people do like symphonic mock-ups, which is uh, using VSTs, and then other people have tried actually to do, you know, just small sections with a live orchestra. And the two are really quite different. In in something like this, and because it's Rob, as Rob said, he has a lot of leeway to to change the to change what what the the piece does. Um, sometimes because the original piece just wouldn't work as an orchestral piece anyway. Um, it's the wrong structure or whatever, but there's lots in there to work with. And uh, the fans are generally, I think, very forgiving on that. Even when someone else does it, there's the, everyone knows that the jump from Sid to orchestra is a huge jump, yeah. and so yeah. big and so big changes usually have to happen unless it was actually self-evident what the composer meant in originally. There's always yeah. choices, and uh, all the people who have heard the mock-ups and whatever so far have been very very enthusiastic about them, especially as there's the sounds, the the, the number of the the. As the quality of the library rendering goes up. They're, yeah. they're, um, so I, I think that, that it's going to be very special for people, even if... I mean, it's something like, like Fire Lord, for instance, uh, it bears only about 
percent resemblance to what Ben originally wrote, but people have fallen in love with it before, yeah. and and yeah. when it and and it's going to be amazing when it's done live. Yeah. Um, so the 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 end the the last few tracks of the concert are just like it's just mind blowing how much there is in that. You've got the Ben's big opuses. You've got Rob's Monty just before the. Uh, as the as the finale track just before Stiff Lip, and Monty on the run getting people in a good mood for it as a breather before the kind of emotional turmoil. It's all yeah. about it's all about telling the emotional story. Um, I, I I was telling it wrong because I and uh, Rob corrected me on the um, on the order of the the tracks um, because I was trying to put all Ben's tracks, including Last Ninja, um, all together as a tribute to Ben. But uh, Rob was right that that. Last Ninja wasn't right and it, uh, as a as a end of concert thing. It was correct as a kind of after the interval when everyone's got settled down thing. It's very it's it's moving, but it's not a big wow wow flashbang thing like Monty on the Run or Fire Lord. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, Last Ninja is kind of um, also not a very you would say. Um, slow piece it's more like like more push a, a pushing kind of music piece you know well it's been scored slow because we've got the wasteland's loader and that is slow okay and wasteland has been scored to get rid of a little bit of the rinky dinkiness that was inherent in the original so it's it's more like dum dum as opposed to dum 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 so yeah. it, it's kind of okay. trying to bring out the epic as opposed to the uh, a previous version of Last Ninja I heard that that was done um, as part of the play concerts had a shaker in it going and oh no don't do that please it it just kind of trivialised it for me and there's 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 definitely a place to shaker should be but Last Ninja Wastelands isn't one of them. Um, so that means actually there will also be some Ben Daglish tunes in this in the orchestra. Oh yeah, there, there's William Wobbler, which is a, so much fun. I'm a bit worried about the, the whether the horn players are going to have trouble with the jazz timing, but it'll work out. Um, Trap, which is a big space epic. Fire Lord, um, um, uh, big piratey adventure, and. Um, Ninja. And Last Ninja, which is... To, it, it was originally 12 minutes, and now it's five, so we had to really cut it down. Okay, okay, interesting. Hmm. Well, we're running out of time. We're already over time. They, they've been very generous with us, um, considering how little rehearsal time there actually is in context. Well, I would have added Deflector to the list, I have to admit. I don't know if that's a proper orchestral tune, though. I know that is why I, I mentioned it. <laughs> I, I, I don't think I don't think you could better what Sidatis did with it, uh, unless you had it like Sidatis with an orchestra. But then you're in an entirely different. Oh, as I said, I'm not a musical expert. I can see no. how, how a tune can uh, can be not fitting for an orchestra. <laughs> but I like I like interesting um, experiments. I have to admit, so. it is interesting. Uh, the the difficulty there, there are some things that when you put them into an orchestral score they just sound like something that has been put into an orchestral score because someone wanted to put it into an orchestral score not because yeah. the music 
not because the music was crying out. I mean, there's at least one piece in this concert which is there, not so much because it's a natural orchestral piece, but because it's a popular piece everyone wanted to hear. Hmm. But which one is that? Ghosts and Goblins. Oh. Um, but it has it, it has the way it's been done. It has a lot of drama and melodrama. In fact, it's it's comic and it's and it worked really well. And Mark Mark did his own arrangement, which took it. It took it about 75% of the way. I tried to take it 25% of the way. That got wound back by Ali, our orchestrator. And then they took it 100% of the way, and then Robin did the rest. So uh, um, it, lots and lots of hands on the piece and all necessary. And uh, what's come out is a hugely catchy, very entertaining piece. But you would not necessarily... There was a lot of work to do to get over the fact that musically... It's catchy, but it doesn't go many places. It's got yeah. two. Well, we have mentioned Last Ninja, and actually the special thing about Last Ninja is that it's not only Ben Daglish, but also Anthony Lees, who who were contributing to the music for the C64. So you actually have to be careful to have both of the influences in the orchestra version, I guess. Well, not really. I mean, we, it was Ben's Wastelands and Ben's Wastelands Loader. There's okay. not a lot. I, I would have liked to have um, the Palace um, or something like that uh, in there from Anthony, but it just there's so little time when you consider the wealth of material there is. I mean, the the the, the Symphonic Kickstarter was three albums. That's like 240 minutes. I mean, the concert is 90 to 90 to 95 minutes so you know we've got like stuff literally fighting to get in um well that means uh, you have to make a successor symphony someday well yeah if if hull works and is widely considered a success and and hull college break even and it's proof that there's an emotional hunger for this then you know there's there's lots of places this can go i mean uh, I, um the 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 big screen we're not DVD recording it, but if you took the big screen video we were showing and put the the, the top quality mock-ups on it, what you have is a version of the show that can be portable. We can send it to Australia, we can send it to America, send it to Germany, put it in a cinema, play it loud, put it, play it at retro f- shows like Retro Expo or Retro Revival or the Com- Cambridge Museum or Retro Computer Museum, and you've got a lot of ways people can enjoy the 8-Bit Symphony concert not quite in the way people enjoy it in the concert hall because it's a live orchestra and there's nothing like that, but in a way that they can get the flavor and experience the emotional flow. You mentioned fast loaders, Rob, and I find it interesting. So you actually keep an eye on what other people are doing with your music when they bring it to stage and perform it? Yeah, to a I mean, I don't, you know... I'm not aware of everything that goes on, but I, you know, a few things I come across. So I'm I'm aware of the Fast Loaders album, and I, I think I've got the track somewhere. Mm-hmm. I find it interesting that you are so restless and still going on and making projects with people like. Um, you know, Chris Abbott. I think that's great because, you know, a lot of composers from the old days um, are a bit with the attitude like, 
who is, is still interested in that stuff that I did like 30, 40 years ago? So it's so great to to see how enthusiastic you are and how much yeah. you keep on the ball with what happens to your tunes. Um, I did a talk in um, Helsinki at some assembly thing. And uh, during that talk, I said that if you're a musician, then it tends to be in your blood and you can't get rid of it. No matter, you know, it's hard to not um, be a musician. And there's, you know, you still spend hours like listening to music and, you know, practicing and playing and um, it's always there. You're always going to try and find some kind of outlet for your for your music and um, your creativity. Um, so if you get a chance to write for an orchestra, which is basically, you know, the kind of height of what you can achieve in some ways, apart from being a conductor, which is the absolute top of the profession. But if you get a chance to write for an orchestra, you, you know, you're going to jump in with both both feet because it's such a rare um, opportunity that most people would give the right arm for. Well, not the right arm, maybe the <laughs> maybe the right leg. <laughs> Anything that you didn't know. need to hold a baton, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know. So, I mean, you're, I... so you're gonna you're gonna go for it basically with um, you know 100 percent of of effort because it's such a rare thing to be able to try to write for an orchestra, and it's such it's such an interesting thing. Um, it's not like writing you know, for a small jazz ensemble or something, to write for a, for a real orchestra, you've got to get into a certain uh, way of thinking, different mindset, and the challenge is, uh, is, is just, uh, you, can't, you can't resist the challenge. It's, um, I can't think of the word. You, you cannot pass up that opportunity is what I'm saying. That's what one of the reasons. One of the reasons I pushed so hard on the project was because I knew that Rob was such so interested in in the orchestral experience, and as you know, more than me, and and would really relish the challenge of getting involved in in something yeah. like this, especially where in previous experiences of this there were kind of a lot of limitations, um, either in terms of like the orchestra type, like Run Ten, or in terms of um, in terms of limitations caused by being at the bottom of the food chain, relatively speaking, orchestrally speaking, because there's such a hierarchy. And uh, it was what, what was good in this one was that Rob it was um, working with the orchestra in a much more um, nourishing and supportive way than in previous projects. So they, they took him on, he took them on. It's all, it's, it's, it's all good. And um, that was an important part of it. Yeah, the relationship that we have with uh, Robin has been really good as mm -hmm. well. And the feedback that we've been getting from Robin, who's the conductor, has been really good. Yeah. Uh, along with um, the other people that I've met on the project, like Graham and Bob from the whole Phil. And Ali. And Ali, yeah, yeah. 
I wonder how it is for the players themselves. I mean, yes, I mean, um, video game music, despite it is a genre nowadays that is getting more known, because um, when, when I was a child uh, 30 years ago, uh, my mother would say it was uh, beep-plop music. Um, how, how was it? Did, did the players have to be introduced to video game music and what you expect from them, how to play well, the instruments? Well, the origin isn't relevant, really. Not okay. anymore. Um, the, the, the music is orchestral music full stop. It sounds yeah. like 80s film soundtracks. They're, they're not going in there to having to find new ways of playing the violin to make a Mario sound. <laughs> Although, I remember, there's a YouTube video where he did exactly that, and that was very clever. But uh, this is the thing. It's not, it's not chip music anymore, except in terms of where it originated. It is symphonic music. Anyone could enjoy this if their mind was open enough to come. And it is melodic uh, and uh, exciting and tuneful and it, it, emotional. And it's all those things. And the fact that the, 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 fact that the people there already know the tunes... Um, that gives an extra, an, a, a very important extra layer of, um, of of connection with the piece. That so you don't have to work for that. That comes with this, with the, with the rations. Um, but if you put this, the, say Monty on the Run High Score Commando, I call it Monty's Journey, frankly. But uh, um, you put that in any concert, and people will enjoy it, whether they're seventy or fifteen because it just reminds them of all sorts of other nostalgic things, that the things they've come into contact with the cinema or whatever. Um, so um, if people allow themselves to come, they'll have a big emotional journey. And if people can't come because they don't like chip music, well, what are they thinking? It's, we're not playing chip music. Well, okay, I might put a quarter of an hour of chip music at the beginning of classical covers just as, just to, as a bit of fun, but it's not chip music. It doesn't sound like chip music. There are no Commodore 64s on stage. Anyone who comes thinking their ears are going to be torn off is wrong. Uh, the only thing I would say to the, to the original question was that I think there are a certain number of people um, who... Uh, like classical music, who would immediately think that this is not highbrow enough. Um, they're stuck in, you know, traditions of uh, 19th century literature, classical literature, and uh, not particularly into you know, 20th century film music or, or whatever. And I think maybe that might apply to some of the players in the orchestra as well who might not be too keen because they've um, got the blinkers on with uh, certain periods of classical music. Okay. I guess I get the target group, however, is, I mean, is the people that played the games and enjoyed uh, the music from the games, I guess. Um... I guess that's basically the target group. Even though you say it doesn't matter if if the person is younger and was not part of that era or is 70 and wasn't really a gamer back in the day. Um, 
uh, finally, I guess the uh, main audience will be people who remember the the music from the old 8-bit computers. Um, I think that's true, but I think also what something that's strange that's been happening is that there's a younger generation of people who are suddenly um, into like 8-bit games who are aware of things like um, Commando and all sorts of other people who are um, into like chip music and will know some of the music from... Um, what they think of as chip tunes who might be interested in the concert. So I think it's not just the old-fashioned um, guys from the 80s who played the games. Hmm. Interesting, yes. Um, that reminds me of a story that um, Dave Lowe told me once, who is also a British composer, and he said he was once in the subway and then he heard the ringtone of a 20-something guy and that was Dark Lighter too and yeah. <laughs> so I guess such things really happen because now that um, retro music retro gaming is hip again that the generation jump is happening and suddenly even younger people discovering the old games and of course also the music that come with it. Some of these guys who were around playing games in the 80s are now grown up and they have uh, offsprings who are suddenly finding um, interest in this stuff as well. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. So that's also something you discovered yourself. Hmm. That's, that's pretty cool. Um, so, from all the pieces that will be played on the orchestra, what is the one that you are the most looking forward to? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, <laughs> Thank you, I uh, try. You, you, you'll, have to, you'll have to give him two, one of his and one of everyone else's. <laughs> well, of um, course. There's, there's actually a lot of good pieces there, like the uh, Aztec Challenge is a terrific piece. Stiff Lip is a terrific piece. And uh, Wobbler's a terrific piece. Um, there's a lot of this stuff is really, really good. Is really good. Um, the, uh, I suppose one of the things that I would like to come off well, I think is the flash because it's. Um, I think it's a hell of an arrangement. It was originally Chris's arrangement. He takes a lot of credit for the flash, and I just um, kind of reworked a lot of it and orchestrated and added bits, lots of other bits to it. Um, save the that, save the life it, of the cello players. It, yeah. Yeah, um, if that comes off really well, then I'll be I'll be pretty pleased um, because I think it's a terrific piece. Uh, I don't know how well, <coughs> how well people will know it, but um, it, I think it's a great arrangement. I've heard it like approximately twenty six million times, so I know it pretty well. <laughs> of course. Um... 
as you prepare for the orchestra, you probably have a lot of rehearsals and heard different pieces over and over again to make sure it will sound right. Well, the, the rehearsals start on the 15th of May, mm-hmm. so we only have basically um, a month. There's only about, what, six or seven rehearsals before the concert. Wow, that must be... Um, a bit worrying, I would say so, yeah. I would say nervous, but okay. Yeah, okay, a bit nervous, yeah. If it was the LSO, they'd be they'd be on three with maybe two. So uh, <laughs> that's how good professional orchestras are. Yeah. Oh, I guess. We get a, I think there's a rehearsal on the Friday and there's a, there's a dress rehearsal on the afternoon of the 15th as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the re- Friday rehearsals at the hall. Yeah. Okay, so the rehearsals are the next big step that's coming forward, actually. We've got the PDFs of the parts, and the PDFs have been given to the players. Uh, I don't know if the how many of them have actually uh, got the got the individual PDFs of their parts and to look at. Um, some of the some of the stuff's like fairly easy, and some of the stuff is is quite difficult. Um, so I think a lot of it is down to how well they can um, get to know the pieces in the different sections, and um, before they start the rehearsals, depends how enthusiastic they are to keep listening to the pieces to get to know them. Uh-huh. I suppose the other thing about musicians is they're very, very proud people, aren't they? Yeah. You know, musicians don't want, they don't want to look bad in any way whatsoever. I mean, you never turn up for a gig and think, oh, this is this is a shit gig, I'm only going to give, you know, 20% effort. You, No matter what the gig is, you do. You always give it your absolute best, don't you? They're very proud because they don't want to. They don't want to come away looking like they haven't absolutely tried their best to play the balls out of everything, you know. And the audience will give them an ample reward for that. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's going to, so. they're going to go nuts. The audience. They'll have never had an audience like it. Yeah, I mean, the, I've been to a, you know a few of the classical concerts with the whole fill, and they've been they've gone down very well. And the playing's been good. The audience have really lapped it up, and there's been massive um, reception at the end with people stomping and clapping and things like that. No one makes more noise than a thousand geeks. Yeah. Last time I looked at the tickets, it's, it, it doesn't seem to have moved very much over the last few weeks. It's got a mid Kickstarter feel to it. But when I looked at the um, last concert, um, they didn't. They hadn't sold many tickets, but when I went to the concert, it was pretty full. I think that, that I think people in this world, you see it in Kickstarters. People in this world are either last minute or very well prepared, but hardly yeah. ever, hardly ever in between. Kickstarters yeah. have a a, couple, a good couple of good three days, then it drifts down. Then you try to survive for three weeks, and then at the end, it kicks up. And yeah. what what with all the the BBC publicity and and the the extra publicity on the ground in Hull and the groundwork we're doing now, 
and uh, the new videos coming online, the new renders, I think um, it'll definitely be an upturn. And yeah. it's, al- it's already over half full. And uh, assuming we sold no more tickets, that would still generate a fair amount of noise. So. Yeah. I guess you are still have two months to go, so it's all good, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. A lot of work to do, but... Uh, you also mentioned in your press release that there will be a lot of video game industry legends to be present. You wrote over 100 legends will be there. Well, any, I have any name dropping, maybe. Um, well, they're still trying to get Chris Horsbeck over. Um, Rob's there. <laughs> uh, Paul Norman. Um, Mar- uh, Mark Cooks is trying to make it. It's got a family thing. Uh, John Hare. Uh, yeah, Dave. Uh, Dave Lowe. Um, Archie McLean, I think, but uh, we've still got to confirm that. And a lot of other, a lot of Amiga faces. Uh, Andrew Barnabas. Uh, there's a whole Amiga section in the in the balcony. I, I'm really glad to hear that uh, Dave Lowe will be in it too. Um, I guess there are a lot of industry legends that never got really much attention until the last couple of years, where they well, suddenly suddenly popped up in a way. Well, Dave's been recently in Abbey Road recording stuff for um, his Kickstarter, recording the Elite Frontier theme. Um, so he's he's very big on uh, orchestras too. So he was really really keen to come along and uh, and sample it. And another person coming is Graham Jarvis. Uh, his name won't be familiar, but he did the Wizardry and Fairlight tunes, and. Um, He's he also after that he became the B- composer for the BBC so he does strictly and he did some things and only falls and horses and a lot of other stuff for the Beeb. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's coming along. He's a Grimsby Grimsby chap. So really? yeah, he doesn't live there now, but that's that's yeah. his stomping ground. So he was yeah. very pleased to come up and uh, come up and give it a listen. He's very excited about it. Um, Wizardry will hopefully be in the next concert, so that's nice. Oh, Wizardry, yes. From Miss Romero, right? I... Uh, well, from, from Edge. Uh, the Wizardry was the, the 1985 one. I, I thought Wizardry, wasn't that that old role-playing game from the uh, early 80s, late 70s? Or am I mistaken? No, wizard. No, this was another one. This was kind of a three D isometric thing which scrolled. Ah, but it has uh, the same name. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> so, anything else planned that people should know for these um, symphony orchestra? They should just buy tickets. Give themselves a treat. Where where are actually people able to buy the tickets? Where can find people more information about this? Um, hulltheatres.co.uk is where they would go for the box office that's h-u-l-l-t-h-e-t-r-e-s dot co.uk hulltheatres.co.uk and the the event itself has a website of 8-bit-symphony.com okay and what are the prices for the tickets um, the cheapest ones, I'm not sure whether there's still any left, are fifteen pounds. Um, they go up. They the the main ones on the main floor are thirty pounds. Um, students get a discount. Um, the balcony, the 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 gallery is thirty five. So okay. it's pretty pretty affordable. And Rob will be there, so that's a reason too. 
Absolutely. Um, uh, I think I'll be there, yeah. Unless, <laughs> unless I drop dead. <laughs> oh, no. Stress. Hopefully not. No. Even, yeah. even, even then, his ghost would be playing the xylophone. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you, you said, Rob, um, during the interview that this is one of the biggest things you can do as, as a musician. Is there yeah. anything else that you want to do next? Is there a next big thing after this orchestra? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't think um, I don't think you can really uh, do anything um, better than writing for an orchestra. Except more orchestra. Can, I don't think you can really do much beyond that, apart from do more and get better at it. Well, there, there are more possibilities. There's Eight Bit Symphony too. If we could get that going, and also doing proper recordings of the of the scores for this eight-bit symphony if we can fund it so there, there's yeah. a lot of there, there's there's a lot of paths forward from here yeah. but they all require for hull to be visibly a success and to prove that there's actually a, a proper demand for it otherwise we'll, uh, we will enjoy it whatever happens and the audience will enjoy it whatever happens but it's um it, we need people to get off their off off their couch and and go and treat themselves to some lovely stuff interesting so in your head you are already planning for the next projects if this one thing is going to be a major success well yeah i think partly it's because it would be a shame to to have spent all this time on something that was only used once and then never heard of again um it's a lot it, it deserves a lot better than that if we, uh, get, if we get realistic costs for recording in prague or something yeah Or Macedon Macedonia is an option as well. Then you can, you've got the scores. All you need to do is just, you know, figure out um, how much, to, you know, how much it's going to cost to pay the orchestra and the recording. Yeah, it's a couple of two or three weeks, I think, probably. I, I bet. Yeah, we need to uh, run the scores by someone and get the get the. But there, there's um, someone uh, that fames do that themselves. We can just uh, send them send them the scores and then they'll price it up. Um, Uh, they, that covers the whole package from flying out to Macedonia, the hotels, and uh, the appropriate technical people in the in the um, in the studio. And they yeah. use a pretty good orchestra that's done some heavy duty stuff. So, um, if we didn't get to Prague, that would be a, a, a very cost effective alternative. Yeah. Okay. I guess this would be all from my side. I'm very happy that you two took the time to talk to me about this. This is oh. a very interesting thing, and I really hope it will be as successful as you hope it would be. It simply must be. It's such a wonderful thing. Well, here's hoping we get it to Cologne. Then you can come. <laughs> oh, yes, Cologne? I, I would definitely go. And as, as you mentioned, maybe making a recording played on an event or something. Why not Gamescom? Gamescom is the biggest um, video game event in the world right now. The biggest fear for that. If they give us an orchestra, we can give them some scores, that's for sure. Or yeah. we can just give them the DVD uh, if, they, if they're feeling cheap. And then they can just play it on a big screen. So, <clears throat> Yeah, why not? Lots of options. Interesting. So this will not be the last time we hear from you, Rob. Probably not. He hopes not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great. Okay. Thanks for taking the time, guys. And no um, 
I'm looking forward to to see the updates and of course to see the final recording because unfortunately I can't make it into this event but I'm sure everybody who will be present will enjoy it a lot. Okay. 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 Okay, okay guys. Thanks, Jörg. So, thank you guys and have a nice evening, right? Uh, and you. Yeah, bye. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye, Rob. So that was Rob Hubbard and Chris Abbott. Uh, to find out more about what they're doing with the 8-Bit Symphony, uh, you can go check out their website, www.8-bit-symphony.com, uh, and you can buy tickets at the Hull Theatre box office over at hulltheaters.co.uk, and that's H-U-L-L-T-H-E-A-T-R-E-S dot C-O dot U-K. Thanks to Rob and Chris for hanging out for our 64th episode, making it an awesome one. Uh, you know where to find us, sceneworld.org. You're probably already there because you're listening to us. Um, and again, links to everything we've talked about today will be in the podcast description below. Until next time, see ya.